This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We're so glad that you are joining us today. Uh, today, our uh, guest is David Maccabee. Uh, he's an attorney here in town who practices construction law. Uh, we also uh, will, so we'll take your uh, comments and questions on that. Our number is 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672 7464. I'm Liz Gill with our host, Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and it is such an honor to have David Mockby on the show today. Uh, if, if I listed his credentials, it would take the full hour, so I'll just say that he has been uh, repeatedly selected to the best lawyers in America in uh, several categories, including construction law. Uh, he was selected as the best uh, construction lawyer of the year by best lawyers in America several years, and he has written many publications, including a uh, treatise on construction law, and it's a, a real pleasure to have David on the show. Thank you very much, Dean. It's my honor to be here with you and Liz this morning. Well, we're excited to, to have you and to have this chance to to talk about uh, construction law. And uh, if you're interested in construction, we also have a show called Fix It 101 that comes on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. But uh, it's always fascinating to me how people get started. How did you get started as, in the lawyer business? I can't remember a time in my life that I didn't anticipate becoming a lawyer. Oh, okay. And I think that's because it's in my blood. Oh, uh-huh. My grandfather was a lawyer, and one of his sons was a lawyer. And then my generation, myself, and now I have two sons who are lawyers. Oh, okay. So I don't think I had a choice. Well, I had a choice. My dad was a lawyer, and my his uncle was a lawyer, but it stopped with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how uh, how did you get into construction law as a specialty? After I graduated from law school in 1974, I had the opportunity and honor to clerk for Judge Charles Clark on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Spent a year there. And then I went with Watkins, Powell, Ludlam, Winter, and Stennis, which was then a large firm in Jackson. Mm -hmm. And that's the firm that my grandfather started. Oh, okay. And I worked there for two years, and I decided maybe I wasn't much on structure. <laughs> and so I decided I would venture out on my own, and I formed a partnership with a former law student friend that I had from Ole Miss who had gone to Atlanta and specialized with a firm that did nothing but construction law. 
and Key came back to Jackson, and he was looking for somebody, and so he and I formed a partnership in 1977. One of those 70s rebels. <laughs> and it was his, his construction uh-huh. law experience yeah. that allowed me to then, you know, learn under him and work with him, and then I enjoyed it. it I, I took to it. Uh, my father was in the construction business, so that was that was part of it, and then I've been doing it now over 40 years. Excellent. You you got the the merge of the of the, the the two industries. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So when you uh, with with a construction lawyer, what kind of uh, uh, issues are you approached with? My clientele through the years has been architects, engineers, contractors, subcontractors, suppliers, bonding companies, all of the different parties that are involved in the construction process. So every day is, like I'm sure it's with you, I plan, <laughs> I plan to do certain things and I never get to do them because my practice is, is very intensive in terms of client contact. I get calls. There's a problem. When you're talking about design and construction, everything is, is an emergency and needs to be tended to. So I spend a lot of time every day on the phone talking with clients about their issues. They then say to me, well, you sound like you've got a handle on it. Why don't you write the letter for me? So I spend a lot of time writing letters for clients and responding to letters uh, from other clients and attorneys. And I'm what I call a litigator. Uh, Also, I've engaged in construction litigation all these years. Mm -hmm. So I'm very active in in trial practice as well as office practice. Mm -hmm. So I really do all of the different and many things that you would expect a number of lawyers to do. So when we've talked on one of our past shows, we've talked about uh, what's the best way to select a lawyer. And uh, one of the best ways is through a personal referral. But when you're uh, representing individuals in the construction business, are they uh, having problems with other people in the construction business or usually businesses outside have you have you ever gotten a referral from someone you've gone up against oh that's not unusual i'm proud to tell you <laughs> and there's a reason that happens they they seem to like what they saw me do uh-huh. even though it didn't benefit them right. initially and i've gotten uh, I, i've gotten i've works both ways too right. you know i've been against clients that are adversaries that i thought that's somebody that i respect just from the way they've conducted themselves and it's a small, you know, nits group when you think about the construction industry. Right. And most right. of my work rem- stays within that area as opposed to branching out. All right. So, uh, you know, I have a, a list of uh, some of the things that uh, construction law goes into. Uh, so you've worked with, with labor issues. You work with uh, building permits, maybe. Uh, you've talked about uh, construction claims and liens. What are some other specific uh, topics that you've assisted clients with? Well, on the public sector, as you know, all all construction projects over $25,000 have to be competitively bid. So my work with a client on a public project begins many times when they're preparing their bid. Oh, okay. And they look at the plans and specifications, mm-hmm. which are the, you know, the map that you go by to build the job, and mm-hmm. they see things that they're not sure exactly what the architect and engineer is trying to say. Oh, okay. And so they'll contact me about 
what, how should they handle that? Right. And should they inquire, uh-huh. which they should. But first they say to me, well, what, what is your take on that? Right. Is, is this not clear? And if it's not clear, how do you interpret it? And then when the job bids, many times uh, somebody feels like they were uh, unfairly not selected, right. if you will. So we get into what we call bid protest. Okay. And that's a formal procedure that you mm-hmm. go through the agency on public works and then on to court if you disagree with the outcome. So I do a lot of what I call bid protest work. Mm-hmm. And then once the contract is awarded, then you have all of the problems that, that occur on any and every job. You right. think about construction. There's too many pieces, parts, and people that have to come together at the same time in the correct in the correct way, mm-hmm. that there's always going to be disputes and disagreements within the construction team. Right. So it's, a, again, it's a daily process of trying to work through those. So uh, it, it would behoove people to use you as an intermediary, uh, a first step to having good communication rather than waiting until when everything's just gone kapooey and you have to clean it up at the end. Absolutely. It's just like doctors say they would prefer to practice preventive medicine. Right. I would prefer to practice preventive law. I can help clients much more economically and effectively if they come to me when they first see the issue Mm -hmm. before they take that first, second, or third step when they now, in many instances, misstepped. Right. Uh, you you mentioned uh, working with a lot of construction individuals. Do you ever represent homeowners uh, in their uh, miscommunications with people who are maybe building for them personally? Yes, I do a good bit of uh, residential. Okay. Uh, Representation, All right. If you will. Okay. Well, we are so glad that uh, we've got David Maccabee here. He's uh, president of Maccabee Hall and Drake, PA. Uh, we're going to take our first break of the show. Uh, we'd love for you to call in with your questions about construction law. Um, if you've had any stories, if you have any preventive stories. I love preventive stories. I love to learn from other people's misfortunes. So, uh if you uh, have any good advice or if you have any questions on uh, what are some of the laws dealing with uh, construction law, please give us a call. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. I've got the computer pulled up, so if you send us an email, legalterms at mpbonline.org, we can take your questions that way. If you're not able to give us a call, you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, we realize that not everybody gets a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you've missed any part of our program, you can listen to the whole show again. It'll be at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. 
And goodness gracious, also, if you podcast, uh, you can download it that way so uh, you can listen to us offline. I'm Liz Gill, and we're here today with our professor, Richard Gershon, from the University of Mississippi School of Law. How you doing up there in Oxford, Professor Gershon? I'm doing great, and except for don't talk about baseball this morning, but I am <laughs> doing really well otherwise. And, it, you know, it's great to have David on, and especially, you know, I, I think what people are hearing is uh, people think of construction law or tax law as specialty areas, but they're really not because, in a way, he has to know everything about a lot of different areas that are involved in construction law and in the construction itself, architecture, uh, you know, building, labor law, things like that. Uh, so in a lot of ways, he's a generalist. And in a lot of ways, you know, the construction law, just like tax law, doesn't happen in a vacuum. So uh, I found it interesting that uh, that uh, Mr. Mockby is a has been an adjunct professor in the architecture school at Mississippi State. And I think it's really great that students there had an opportunity to hear from a lawyer some of the, the issues that they're going to encounter uh, as they approach their architecture career. So really great to have him on the show today. Well, I appreciate that again, Richard. And I have to confess with my class at Mississippi State, I teach them the the fifth year there's a fifth year program that comes to jackson so i teach them here in jackson the spring of their fifth year so they're thinking about graduating and their projects <laughs> that they have to complete and so it's it's a pretty difficult course to keep their attention but at the end of each semester they always come up to me and say that if they had had my course the first semester of architecture school they would have changed to some other discipline (laughs) (laughs) well i think uh, it it just goes to show the the importance of communication and uh, no matter how many times you revise a statement or you look at something someone could always interpret it differently than you intend so it's good to have someone's advice to, to help you out with that well that's so true. And, of course, that's that's good for me because when people disagree about what they agree to, then that's, that's an opportunity for me. But you're exactly right that somebody can read something and come to exactly the opposite result than I reading it come to. Right. And it's not just because that's contrived. It It's real. And no matter how much you try to get everything right, every I dot and every T cross, you can never do it. And when somebody else comes along and picks it up from the first time, it's not unusual for them to come to an entirely different uh, conclusion. All right. Which is good for us. Well, and we're so glad our listeners have called in. If you have a question about construction law for our guest, uh, David Mockby, we'd love for you to call in to find out what the laws are concerning construction. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 1- And now from Hattiesburg, we've got Robert on the line. Uh, Robert, what's your question or comment for our show? Well, hello. Thank you. Uh, Great show today. As a contractor, I just had a couple of questions about uh, contracts and timelines specifically. And I was wondering if we'll say you have a a building contract uh, with a homeowner. And in the contract, you state that your estimated time of completion would be two months. Uh, however, the actual time of completion stretches to three months. Um, and we'll say in the contract, there's no definitive end date. But what kind of consequences could a contractor face? I, I've been in the situation before where 
people get very unhappy when things take longer than expected. Uh, I just didn't know if people could legally withhold uh, payments or file some kind of suit for non-completion of the work. The work is still going on. I, I prefer to just hang up and uh, let you guys discuss this. If that's okay. All right. Thanks, uh, Robert. Do you have enough information to answer that kind of question? Yes, I believe I do. And, and Robert's uh, makes me think back to the spring we've suffered to, through this year. Oh. <laughs> and when it comes to completing a project on time, nobody has done that. Uh-huh. So, so Robert, let me say that the first thing I would suggest that you always think about is is one party or the other at fault. If the contractor is not at fault, then whatever time limit there is in the contract is subject to reasonable extension due to causes beyond the contractor's control. And the best example is, you know, weather conditions, unusually adverse weather conditions are not taken into account by you when you estimate the time. I know that. And so, therefore, one of the important things and the reason that I express always having a written contract is the owner should be advised by you if there's no lawyer involved of the fact that yes we have an estimate or we have a fixed completion date but the estimate and the fixed completion date are due to justifiable extensions for causes beyond the contractor's control Mm -hmm. and when you say an estimate of course an estimate is what it says an estimate but that doesn't mean it's a blank check it's the extension beyond the estimated time must be reasonable and, again, uh, should not be the, any fault of the contractor. Okay. All right. Robert, does that answer your question? It does. I'll tell you what, I have uh, one addition to that question. Go ahead. Um, so when you say due to the contractor's uh, fault or responsibility, would – okay, so we'll say the contractor has several jobs ongoing on at the same time and – a problem with one job slows everything down with the other jobs. Is that something that's a reasonable extension of time, or is that does that come into well, this is the contract's fault? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's your responsibility to manage the number of jobs you have so that none suffer because of any of the others. But again, right. there can be an unusual event that causes one job to be materially delayed that due to nothing that you can or or didn't do that causes a a ripple effect if you will on the other projects and that would be something that i would hope uh would be the something that could be discussed and explained to the owner before it becomes a problem and i can't overemphasize communication between the contractor and the owner that's the answer to every dispute that i've ever been involved in and the and the and the fact is that the more communication and the earlier the communications, the the better the job is going to go, regardless of of what happens that's unanticipated during the course of of the project. All right, thank you for your call today, Robert. We appreciate you listening. Next, we're going to move on to Tupelo. Uh, Rub, we we're glad that you've called in. What's your question or comment for the show? Uh, yes. Good morning. Um, it's uh, my question revolves around what can an owner do who is a private owner and the general contractor is not able to obtain a performance bond or a payment bond 
and therefore cannot offer those protections for themselves and for the owner. So what can a private owner do to protect themselves when those bonds are not available? Is your name Rub or Rudd? R-U-D. <laughs> I believe I know this caller. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I? I think you do. I think I do. How you doing, Rudd? I'm good, David. How you good. doing? Good. I'm good. Yeah, uh, I think the, the main thing to think about in that regard uh, to protect the owner is to hold retainage, and that's an amount of the contract amount, for work that the contractor has performed and earned, but to hold back an amount so that if there are any future problems, there's there's a contingency, if you will, or a depository of some funds. And, Rudd, as you know, on public works, a lot of times we see a 10% hold back uh, for that purpose. The second thing would be if you're dealing with private work and it's particularly if it's residential then and you don't have a bond which as you know is unusual on residential projects to ever have a bond you would you would want to uh have the contractor, which is usually a corporate entity, have the principal of the contracting firm to guarantee the performance of the contract by by the company. Uh, too many times in my experience when there's a bad uh, result on a residential construction and there's serious issues and the amount of money is significant, uh, co- construction companies will just basically go out of business. And so there's there's no way really for the homeowner to to uh, be compensated or to have the job properly completed without having to pay again for what they've already paid for. All right, Rudd, does that help answer your question? Yes, it certainly does, and I appreciate you presenting this information today. I think most people will find it very helpful. All right. Well, we're glad that uh, you've called in. And um, uh, listeners, if you have a question on construction law, uh, we'd love for you to call in. Uh, you know. Don't don't wait till the end of the show to call in because uh, uh, our, we've, our guest uh, uh, David Maccabee he doesn't get to stay here all day so we need you to if you've got a, if you think of a question that uh, you would like answered go ahead and call in now we're talking about construction law our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four we've got a next call is Roger in Florence. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, good morning. Thank you for what you're doing. It's kind of like one of the other callers. David won't recognize the Roger, but uh, but uh, I'm in Florence, and I've served on the bench for a while and known David a long time, and I'm glad to, for you to share your time. Thank you a whole lot. I, I would like you to comment briefly, if you can educate the listeners, about the origins, well, in Mississippi anyway, of arbitration as applied to contract because it seems to me that it really got developed in in, um, in construction contract relationships. But now, of course, as anybody who's bought anything big knows, uh, uh, arbitration is well developed as an alternative dispute resolution technique. And I'm, I'm generally for it, but it's kind of bad on one count, and you don't have to comment on this, how you give up your rights to a jury trial. But anyway, that's that's one thing I'd like you to comment on. And then secondly, uh, I've had some experience, so regrettably, 
serving on nonprofits such as churches and other boards. And when we would get a contract to build something, the uh, scenario talked about with a previous caller this morning where it doesn't get done on time. And these charitable institutions, I think, are more compassionate, and they never put in a contract a penalty clause. And so I wish you would comment about that and advise people who are, you know, feeling compassionate, especially churches, to be tough. Put a provision in there that that at least provides some kind of a monetary penalty that gives the contractor an incentive to put aside those other people that he's telling you that he, uh, I've got to finish this other project, or whatever the excuse is, act of God, whatever, and and suffer a little penalty because without that, it may never end. Okay, I'm going to hang up and, <laughs> and listen. <laughs> thank you, David. Thanks for what you're doing, and thank all of you. Bye. Roger. <laughs> Thank you, Judge, and I I recognize your voice. You didn't have to tell me who you were, but a couple of points. You are correct about construction and arbitration. Mm -hmm. I would suggest to you that in Mississippi, construction industry was on the cutting edge of uh, accepting and utilizing the arbitration in lieu of litigation in construction disputes. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because construction is complicated and complex. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell this. I I say it tongue in cheek, and you'll understand that when I get to the end of this. But I I ask clients, what would you rather have? Would you rather have an arbitrator or three arbitrators, if it's more than a million dollars, who have expertise in the field of construction or 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty? And it's usually that is understood. And Mm -hmm. but I don't really uh, subscribe to that theory because my thinking is that still a jury is the best method to resolve a factual dispute between parties who are both acting in good faith and trying to get the right result. Now, they both think they're right, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go through the litigation process. And and I tell, I tell my students and I tell my clients, they say, well, this is too complicated. We don't want to be in court. And I, I say, that's my job. I'm the lawyer. I'm supposed to make the complicated and the complex simple and understandable for the jury because I bring the experience and the jury brings the collective common sense of 12 people Mm -hmm. that is a common sense like no other that I know of in any aspect of life. And if you give them the right information, they'll reach the right result. Mm-hmm. Conversely, one of the one of the reasons that that I'm not always in favor of arbitration is it matters which side of the arbitration dispute you're on in terms of whether you want to arbitrate or not. Most of the construction industry arbitration is sponsored by uh, the American Arbitration Association, made up of construction industry panelists. Those panelists are for the almost uh, totally non-owner types. Mm -hmm. They're contractors, subcontractors, architects, engineers. The largest single group within the industry of of arbitrators are lawyers. Now, they're lawyers that have arbitration, that have construction experience, but for me, I don't necessarily want another lawyer deciding my construction dispute. I'd rather have some technical expertise. But 
we arbitrate now in, in the construction industry at least 50% of the cases that are arbitrated. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a sophisticated owner on the other side, then it, the, the playing field is, is more level, if uh-huh. you will. But I tell generally clients, I say, if, if you're an owner, you need to think twice about whether you want to agree to arbitration when the contract is signed which is generally when that decision is made. I always say to my owners, you don't have to decide. You can wait, and if if there's a dispute, then you can evaluate, once you know what the issues are, whether you feel comfortable going to arbitration or litigation. So I say to to owner-type clients, you don't necessarily want to just agree to arbitration because you've heard a lot of people say it's great because you have expertise. Uh, again, the expertise might be of the wrong, uh, the opposite inclination to what you're interested in, and that can be a problem. There's a myth that arbitration is less expensive than litigation. That's not true. There's a myth that it uh, takes less time than uh, litigation. Uh, that part is true to some extent, but in that shorter period of time, you you spend just as much money preparing the case as you would if you were in the courthouse, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and you have to pay the arbitrators. Uh, on average now, uh, $300 an hour uh, for them to listen to you. So uh, I have my clients think long and hard when we make a decision about whether we're going to agree to arbitration, and particularly at the time we're signing the contract. All right. And before we move on to the second part of uh, Roger's question, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Uh, Professor Gershon is our expert. We're joined today by David Maccabee. We're talking about construction law. So if you have a question, uh, oh, we almost have full lines, but we've got room for just your phone call also. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This morning, we're talking about construction law. Our guest is David Mockby, and who has a quite a long resume of uh, construction law experience. He also uh, uh, gives a little talking to some some to our brand new architects at Mississippi State, and we're glad to have him here today. So, if you have any questions about uh, construction law, home building. Uh, um, uh, we'd love to take your call. Our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one. 1- 877-672-7464. Uh, Professor Gershon, has, uh, have you had uh, any uh, good, bad uh, homeowner uh, construction stories to tell? 
I think if you're a homeowner, you always have some. You know, I mean, there's no question. You know, little minor things, fortunately. Uh, but owning a home, always there are always some issues. And uh, but you know, one thing that um, that David mentioned, I think it's so important, is that if you think about a contract at the beginning as a set of instructions that gives people, you know, an idea of what their duties are and what their rights are from the beginning. And if you have good conversation, then you don't end up in, as often in litigation or arbitration. So if people would go to attorneys like David early on before they entered into uh, the building uh, agreement, uh, he can spot problems ahead of time that he can help them solve. And I know I have built things in my of my own, like a gas grill, without a good set of instructions. <laughs> and I'm always afraid that thing is going to blow up. And you can you can make your own instructions if you want to, and you'll save money on the front end, but in the in the back end, it really costs a lot more. So I can't I can't emphasize enough that you know communication, but also getting a good set of instructions from the beginning. And that's really what a contract is. That's what a will is. You know, those written legal documents. And you, if you go to a lawyer and get help with them, you'll get a better better uh, result. Fantastic. Well, we uh, we took a break in the middle of a two-part question. We had a caller who uh, wanted to comment on uh, not-for-profits when they have contracts with uh, construction companies about, I guess it was this person's experience that the not-for-profit doesn't put in or doesn't enforce any uh, time commitments. Uh, what's your take on that, uh Mr. Mockby. Judge, this is a tough one when you're talking about nonprofits. And the reason is when you talk about a penalty, we're talking about the concept of liquidated damages. And, and that is, as Judge, as you know, that the, the parties agree that if the project is not completed on time, then there'll be, a, there'll be an agreed amount that will be owed per day of delay past the original completion time. So, but they're called liquidated damages, and, and, and the reason that is is because they can't constitute a penalty. That means you can't just say, well, if you're late today, I'm going to charge you a million dollars and expect that to be enforced. The daily rate has to be reasonable in regard to the financial consequences to the owner if the project is not completed on time. And again, when you're talking about nonprofits, it's questionable exactly what damages they have other than the ongoing construction-related cost uh, that might be incurred. So you have to be be careful in structuring the liquidated damage provision in the contract that it is a reasonable estimate in advance of what the actual cost may very well be. So having said all that, my recommendation in the nonprofit sector is you hold the contractor's feet to the fire in terms of getting the project completed. And if the owner in consultation with the architect and or engineer will do that, then you can avoid ending up at the original completion date far from completion of the work. And again, I think that's the best method uh, in the uh, context of nonprofits, but everybody has to be diligent on the owner side to make that work. All right. Well, we've got full lines. Patty, Charles, Tim, Megan, hang on. Uh, Patty, we appreciate you holding on for so long from Canton. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Okay, yeah, I have a question first and then a comment. Thank you for your program. I wish I uh, had 
You had had this program before I built my house three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did uh, go through all the steps. I had a contract. I had the, the banker's uh, uh, agreement. I had an attorney to look at everything. However, the builder um, um, was supposed to finish my house um, within six months, but it, it, it drew on, and I found out that he was building four other houses that were about three times bigger than mine. So that's where he put his emphasis, and when I got ready to move in, uh, he knew I wanted to move in by Christmas. He had not um, uh, finished things, so I said, okay, well, I'll hold out my last payment, and uh, so he said, well, okay, I'm going to pull all my men. So just back and forth. And so uh, anyway, I closed uh, reluctantly with things unfinished. And so what I want to say to the other homeowners, homeowners that an option is to go to small claims court, which you can uh, up to uh, $3,500. And that's what I did. And I, um, since that was an adversarial relationship by that time, I got someone else to finish the work that he did incomplete so um, patty we appreciate uh, your uh, experience Uh, now now my question has to do with um, construction of a road through a residential area does uh, are the authorities um, duty bound to contact the homeowners uh, who own land along a stretch where a road is going to be uh, expanded or improved, especially when it impinges on the, the home, the residential land, um, before they begin to stake off, uh, you know, the city or the county, whoever is involved, shouldn't the homeowners be, re, uh, shouldn't they be required to contact the homeowners first? Yes, I would say they should be, but legally, if that's a dedicated street, and that is it's been uh, conveyed to the public, be it the city or the county, who whatever public entity it is, there's no legal requirement that they give uh, advance notice. It's just, to me, it's just good management. Uh, for everybody concerned because, you know, during construction there can be problems uh, between the, 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 the public owner and the adjacent landowners that, again, can be avoided if there's communication about when are they coming, what are they going to do, how long do they think it's going to take, what hours of the day are they going to work. Those are all things that should be discussed uh, on the front end so that you know what's, what's going to happen, and if you see a problem with it, you can express your concern. But I know of no legal requirement. Okay. Is it common practice also that if they take a part of the homeowner's land to improve the road or whatever, that the uh, homeowners be compensated? Absolutely. If they come on your property, take one step on your property without uh, getting your your prior approval, then uh, they're trespassing. And you're entitled to recourse. If they take your property and and want to keep it, then, of course, you're entitled to reasonable compensation uh, uh, for the the taking. That's an eminent domain process is what I'm talking about there. And they have to go through a special uh, litigation process to establish the value of whatever portion of the property that you own that they're taking so that you are, in fact, fairly compensated. Which court do you go to for that? It's in circuit court, but it's a court of uh, eminent. It's called a court of eminent domain, but it's okay. it's handled in circuit court. All right. 
Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. All right. And did you want to say something else about the uh, uh, comment about uh, not finishing? I wanted to respond to uh, the dean's comment about how important it is to have a written contract. It is so very important. But it's not – well, it, it may not be as important as complying with the contract during the project. The, the most frequent problems we have in construction disputes are changes during construction. There's not a written contract that's ever been prepared that doesn't state that the parties agree that any changes will be in writing and agreed upon in advance of performing the work. Very few people follow those rules. Those are the rules the parties agree to, but neither one of them. And homeowners are the world's worst at that. They make changes. They see something that they think is little. Change that paint color. Put me a drawer there. The next thing you know, there's a list of 100 things, and you're talking some money, and the contractor brings a bill, and the owner goes through the roof. Well, that could have been avoided by both parties had they played by the rules. So I say it's like football. I'm a big football guy. The contract, those are the rules of the game. Both parties need to know the rules of the game and abide by them. And we'll have very few problems if that's the case. All right. Well, now we need to take one last break. Uh, We have full calls. So, Robert, Charles, Tim, and Megan, we will get to you before the end of the show. But uh, we need to take our last break. We're listening to, uh, you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening today. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, remember, if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, and you can download it as a podcast. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, and our guest is David Mockby. So we're talking construction law. As promised, uh, we are only going to finish off with our last four calls. Uh, Charles, Charles from Gulfport, we appreciate you holding on. Uh, what's your question or comment about construction law? Okay, thanks for taking my call. I've, I've just recently had a siding put on, on my house. And I had, uh, I, I guess I could call the company's name reputable, the Home Depot, to do it. And uh, 
they actually uh, did a real shoddy job of it. And I took pictures. I went around after it was done. I took pictures of everything that was all messed up, wiring messed up. Some of the PVC pipe was broken off. <coughs> fix it right and uh ends weren't meeting windows they sealed up the windows and uh it was just a shoddy job that they did and it cost me fifteen thousand dollars so i took pictures sent it out to those email addresses that i had on the contract i did get a representative to come back come down to see me from houston he walked around the house and uh, he looked at it and he said, well, I think we could take care of this. This was a month and a half ago. And I haven't heard anything and I haven't gotten any response. And and I'm just short of going on social media and blaspheming uh, Home Depot. And, pour, and then put my pictures on there. Do Child. I have any other recourse before I do something like that? Because I don't want anybody else to, to go and do a deal with them and have the same experience I've had and pay $15,000 for such a shoddy job. Oh, we feel your pain. What's uh, what's a generally accepted amount of time for um, fixing problems? Oh, that's pretty arbitrary to have to say that. Uh, I would say if you don't get something, a satisfactory schedule for correction of the defects within 30 days, you need to take some action. And Because, and, again, one of the problems is if you don't, if you're not proactive and uh, Charles, it sounds like you certainly are, but a lot of people let these things drag on, and it only gets worse because they think they they then think they can ignore you, and you'll eventually go away. So be proactive. It sounds like you are within 30 days. I'd want to read your agreement to see. I fear you have a limitation of liability clause in your contract that says that Home Depot is only uh, responsible for repairing the defects and nothing else. Although your damages will ultimately be a lot more than that, given the time factor and all. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm worried that you're in a situation where $15,000 is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But when you go hire a lawyer it, uh, and you get a couple of bills, it all, all of a sudden doesn't seem like so much. Uh, so I think whatever you can do, you should do. But I don't counsel you to uh, make verbal attacks on uh, – Home Depot. I think you would be you would be better off to if this person from Houston or someone else who is truly an expert in the field can come look at your house and say that it's defective. It needs to be replaced. The siding needs to be replaced. Put that down in writing, and then you can go with some ammunition back to Home Depot. And if they don't do that, then you have the beginnings of the evidence that you need, frankly, to sue them if you need to sue them. And I have to tell you, I think... Uh, you against Home Depot in a court uh, of law, uh, I, I would like to have your side of the case. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim in Louisiana, uh, go ahead with your question or comment for our show. Yes, this is Megan. Oh, okay. All right, Megan, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, okay, thank you. Two quick questions. Um, when you're building, this is from a homeowner's perspective. When you're building, should you go with a cost plus 10% or 15% or whatever, or a locked-in one-price deal? And second, if you are building a home, because Mississippi apparently has very low standards for meeting you know, minimum uh, standards, 
I know there's a national code, and uh, but do you recommend that that if you're building a home that a homeowner, I mean, a, you have a home inspector come in and inspect as you go through the process to make sure you are being done right? Okay, let me take the cost plus versus a fixed price. And again, uh, it, that answer would depend first on your experience in uh, contracting with contractors from an owner's perspective and what your financial uh, uh, situation is. A fixed price gives you the comfort that you know that the job, when completed, according to the plans and specifications, will not cost any more than was agreed upon unless changes are made, uh, basically by you or unanticipated uh, occurrences are, are uh, encountered, such as subsurface uh, conditions, all of which would entitle the contractor to increase the price. A cost plus, on the other side, if you would want to say a cost plus a guaranteed max, in my opinion. And that then says the contractor will bill at a cost plus 10%, hopefully to save you money beyond uh, the, the estimated price. But in any event, contractually, the contractor is bound to complete the job for a not-to-exceed amount that you know you're, you can uh, live with. All right, and then what about uh, the uh, specifications? What about uh, the second part of her questions? Are you talking, Megan, about some some uh, private entity to come look during construction? Or are you talking yes, about the building inspector? Because they're, you know, I know you have minimum standards. That, yeah. that, but do you recommend that people actually pay someone to come behind the builder as their as your building to make sure they're building to code? I do. I absolutely do. It's money well spent because if something is is not done correctly, the earlier it's cost, the caught, the less it'll cost to complete it ultimately correctly. So it's worth the money. And I would say to you, when you do a, a when the contractor comes to you with a pay application at the end of the month or whatever period, I would have that person walk the job at that point in time and tell you, yes, this work is properly done, and it looks like the amount of work that you're being billed for uh, is in place. Because, you know, defective work is a problem, but overbilling is is maybe even more of a problem in many residential construction projects. All right. Thanks, Megan. Tim and Robert, I am so sorry we have run out of time for you. Uh, send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This has been uh, such a treat to have, have David uh, Mockby as our guest. Uh, thanks for coming on our show. Uh, we thank uh, Java Chapman for call screening and Jay White for being our engineer in Jackson. In Oxford, we appreciate Tracy Daniel. For Professor Richard Gerson at the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is Tuesday Southern Remedy with uh, uh, Dr. Susan Buttress. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.